The scripture reading that Trey has asked me to read this morning is found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, if you'd like to follow along. It reads as follows. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fill what, the, what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in the darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the great news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate that. Good morning, folks. Really glad you all are here. Why don't you grab your Bibles, if you haven't already, and let's turn to the passage that Jay just read. Matthew chapter 4, again, is where we're going to be. And we'll begin in verse 12 and finish out chapter 4 of Matthew this morning. As you're getting your Bibles out and uh, finding Matthew 4, um, if you would uh, quickly bow with me for prayer. Father, thank you for the morning, for the privilege to look into your word and see more about the life and ministry of Jesus. Lord, we pray that he would be made much of, that Christ would be exalted as our King of kings and Lord of lords, the sinless Son of God and our personal Savior through faith in him. Father, help us to learn the message that you would have for us today as we look at the king's message, as we look at the men that you've called him to follow, and as we look at the ministry that he engaged in as a model for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, just about a week ago, to be specific, on January the 20th, there was a significant change in the political reality of our country, as, of course, a new president was inaugurated, thus beginning his official term and tenure as the president of the United States. Now, his swearing-in was followed by his inaugural address, his inaugural address, the president's first major message to the people. And of course, in the days that have followed and will continue to follow, his appointees will go through confirmation hearings and processes as the president begins to gather his men, his men around him. And of course, the president has already begun with his agenda for the nation, his uh, ministry, if you will, to the people. Three M's, message and men and ministry We'll highlight our sermon today as we see the inauguration, if you will, the start, the official beginning, public ministry of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, as Jesus' ministry to the nation officially is inaugurated. 
First of all, we'll see the king's message in verses 12 through 17, his inaugural address. Then we'll begin to see his men, the king's men, as he begins to gather disciples around him, calling them to follow him in verses 18 through 22. Then, of course, we'll see his ministry, a short uh, bullet point summary of Jesus' initial ministry to both his disciples and the crowds in general in verses 23 through 25 as we see him teaching and preaching and healing. So we'll see his message, we'll see his men, and then we'll see his ministry. Let's take a look at the king's message. The king's message starting in verse 12, although we don't actually get to his message until verse 17, and that is because uh, the king's message is preceded by both chronological and geographical details about the ministry of Jesus to prepare us for the message that we'll see him preach in verse 17. So beginning in verse 12, Matthew begins with some chronological details, that is some time details. Notice verse 12 reads this way. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. So here we see some chronological details that gives us some time indications for the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now you may recall, of course this is referring to John the Baptist, you may recall that uh, King Herod uh, threw John the Baptist in jail because John the Baptist had criticized publicly his adulterous relationship with his very own brother's wife. Almost certainly we see, uh, we can assume that the religious leaders of the day also uh, aided in this uh, imprisonment. So when Matthew says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, it, it tells us something. At, at what point in time did Jesus begin his official ministry? Now we know from other gospels, specifically the gospel of John, that Jesus had been doing some ministry even for about a year prior to this. So for about an entire year, Jesus had been doing uh, some ministry, but Matthew uh, chooses to begin his, uh, his record of the official beginning of the ministry of Jesus here with this particular instance of John being arrested. So why does he do that? Why does he begin here? Well, I think he begins here because John's arrest as the forerunner to Jesus uh, signaled a new phase in the ministry of Jesus as the Messiah. Dr. Stanley Toussaint over at Dallas Seminary puts it this way. He says, in royal protocol, in royal protocol, the king does not make his appearance in public until the forerunner has finished his work. Then he says this, Matthew, emphasizing the official and regal character of Jesus, follows this procedure exactly. So here we have Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, officially off the scene, so to speak. He, his ministry complete. And so Jesus, the Messiah, now begins his official ministry, public ministry, to the nation of Israel. Well, we see uh, the chronological details in verse 12, but we also see some uh, geographical details that, that are significant. So verse 12 again, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, what did he do? Well, the text tells us that he withdrew, very important word there, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. So, after John is thrown in prison, Jesus leaves the southern region of Judea, and you can see it on the map behind me. He leaves the southern region of Judea, 
and his hometown of Nazareth, and he withdraws to this northern region. You see it there, the region known as the Galilee. It's the northern region uh, there in the land of Israel. It's it's a primarily Gentile region. Certainly there were Jews there, uh, but it was primarily a Gentile region in the northern uh, part of Israel. And he makes the city called Capernaum. The city of Capernaum essentially becomes his, his home base, his, his, the place where he continually uh, goes back to. You see it there on the map. Here we see Jesus withdraws because he is interested in avoiding, uh, avoiding Jewish confrontation prematurely. So notice, he withdrew. He withdrew. There was conflict. And because of that conflict, he leaves the southern region of, of Israel and he moves to the north. Now, we see in verse 13 the nature of this conflict with the religious leaders. Matthew doesn't mention it, but we see it in the Gospel of Luke. Notice verse 13 again. Leaving where? What, what town does he leave? Why does he withdraw? Leaving Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, as we know, was the hometown of Jesus, and he has to withdraw there because there's some hostility. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, we get the account of exactly what happened. And there we see that Jesus preaches a sermon, and he uh, is not well-received by his hometown folks. In fact, he preaches a sermon, and the crowd gets so angry at him. You remember what they do? They drag him up to the top of a, of a mountain or a hill where there's a cliff, and what do they want to do? They want to throw him over to, to kill him. Talk about a, a sermon that's not well received, right? Talk, talk about getting rid of a preacher. I would leave too. If you guys drug me out of here and tried to throw me in the lake or something, right? That's how you know you're not welcomed. Now, of course, you'd never do that, would you? Jesus had to withdraw. There was conflict. And this conflict would escalate to the crux of a cross. But only in due time. So he withdraws. Matthew also adds some important detail that the area to which he withdrew to once belonged to the tribes of Israel known as Zebulun and Naphtali. You can see that also on the map behind me. And he tells us that that's important. In fact, he says that Jesus withdrawing from the south and going to the north actually predict, actually fulfills Isaiah's prediction. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 14 reads this way. He did this to fulfill Verse 14, what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And this is what Isaiah said. Land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, as we move on finally to verse 17, we see the, 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 the message of the king. We see Jesus finally begin to preach. But I want us to note, there's a connection here in verse 16. There has been, in verse 16, there was a great light, right? His preaching and his presence is described as, as the lights going on in this Gentile region. Verse 17, from that time on, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? Well, Matthew tells us. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now let me ask you, friends, if you've been with us or if you're familiar with the, with the gospel of Matthew, does this message sound familiar? Have we heard it before? Yes, we have. On whose lips have we heard this exact same message? John the Baptist, right? So Jesus preaches the exact same message as his forerunner. John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. It's being offered to the nation of Israel because the king, Jesus, is here. 
So repentance and faith in him is necessary. So, here we see the preaching and ministry of Jesus going public, if you will. He begins his messianic ministry with a message of repentance and faith in him because the kingdom is imminent. So, what lessons can we glean from this initial, initial section, the, the king's message? I see three at least. Number one, this is a hard one, but an important one. Standing and speaking for righteousness may cost you. To stand for and to speak up for righteousness may cost us. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. And of course, we see this lesson from the life and ministry of Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. We know the story. He spoke up for righteousness, and he was persecuted because of it. Ultimately, we know that it ended with a gruesome death and his beheading at the hands of Herod. John the Baptist spoke for righteousness. And friends, at times, it's necessary and right for us to stand for what is right in God's eyes and to speak what is true in his ears, even in the face of both king and culture. In the face of both king and culture, we need to speak that which is true and righteous. It got John arrested and beheaded. It cost him something. But friends, I promise you, if you one day meet John the Baptist in heaven, and I think you, you will if you're a Christian, you can ask him this question. John, was it worth it? Do you wish you wouldn't have said that? And friends, I can promise you he's going to say, it's worth it. It's worth it. He'll say, count the cost, because that's what Jesus says. Then take the consequences. Count the cost, be courageous, and receive the consequences as they may. It's worth it. But for standing and speaking for righteousness, it most likely will cost you. But do it anyway. Number two, there is a time for conflict and there is a time to avoid conflict. We see it in verses 12 and 13. To me, this is a fascinating thing that we see throughout all of the Gospels, in particular in Matthew. We see that Jesus at times engages boldly in conflict, in particular with those who were the religious leaders of the day. And at times, like we see mentioned here, he withdraws from conflict. He said, "He says, I've had conflict and I have other work to do, so I'm going to, to avoid or withdraw from controversy. Jesus did both. And friends, I think we can as well. He knew when to initiate it. He knew when to withdraw. Friends, we have to remember that though he was fully God, he was also fully man, dependent upon the Spirit of God in his ministry to give him wisdom and discernment and to lead him. And friends, we too, if we are believers in Christ, can have the very same wisdom and insight through the Spirit to know, is this a time to engage or is it a time to withdraw? We see both in the ministry of Jesus. Number three, the first step of discipleship. The first step of discipleship is believing in Jesus. I think in this section, in particular the first two sections we're looking at today, I think we see a, a, a three-step process of discipleship. It's outlined here in this gospel and throughout the scriptures, three steps to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And the first step here we see in Jesus' preaching. What does he say? What do you need to do if you want to enter the kingdom? Repent, 
right? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the first step of discipleship is this dual, uh, this dual repentance and faith. We talked about it a few weeks ago, so I won't belabor the point. But there is a repentance. We turn from sin and from self and from independence and from being right with God by our own means. Uh, that's repentance. And then we turn towards Jesus in faith, knowing that it's only through his righteousness, through his death and life and resurrection that we can be made right with God. Friends, that's the first step towards becoming a Christian, is repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. So friends, have you done that this morning? Have you come to the place where you have begun a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith? That's where the Christian life begins. So, we've seen the king's message in verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What about his men? We see the king beginning to gather his men around him in verses 18 through 22. Excuse me. Let's read it. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse 19, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him. So here we see in verses 18 through 22, Jesus begins to gather his men around him, his faithful followers in the region of of Galilee now, there in the north. Jesus calls his first disciples, and I would say he does so in a most unusual place. If I were looking for 12 men uh, to lead the church that I knew would be established, I'm not sure if I'd go to the lake and look for fishermen. No offense to those of you guys who are fishermen, right? But generally speaking, in that day, the best and the brightest, the intellectual or social or political elites, uh, weren't on the boats fishing. That's not where you would find the best and the brightest. But this is where Jesus goes. You could put it this way. The region of Galilee was not Palo Alto, California. And the city of Capernaum was not Stanford, right? If you get my draft. This is not the elitist place. But Jesus chooses this place, and he finds two men and their brothers, Peter and Andrew. And he simply says, it strikes me, it always does. What does he say? Follow me, right? Come and follow me. It's not as unusual as we might think of it, given the context. Rabbis in, the, in that day would gather disciples around them, and it was a, a, a tradition that literally uh, there would be a rabbi, and his disciples literally would follow behind him, so that a rabbi would lead, and there would be a set of disciples literally following behind him. And so it's not all that uncommon for, for Jesus here taking the, the role of a rabbi to call disciples unto him, but what, what was unusual was several things. Um, typically when people would follow a rabbi in that day, they, they wouldn't quit their day jobs, right? They wouldn't stop fishing or, or whatever it was that they were doing. They would just follow him on the side. But that's, that's not what Jesus is doing, right? Drop your nets, follow me. That's what his disciples did. Not only that, but typically in that day, that day um, uh, disciples would choose their rabbis. So the disciple would say, I really want to follow rabbi so-and-so. And then they would begin to, to follow him. Is that what we see happening here? It's not what we see happening here. Jesus is the one initiating. He says, you, Peter, and you, Andrew, I want you. You come and follow me. It's also unusual that Jesus adds, here's the the purpose or the point of this discipleship. 
He says, come, follow me, and then what will he make them into? I will send you out to be fishers of men, right? I will make you into fishers of men. It's an allusion to Jeremiah 16, 16, where God says that he will send out fishermen, so to speak, to gather the Jewish people that were in exile and to bring them home. Here Jesus says that I'm going to call out a new set of fishermen, these disciples, and they will announce the end of, of, of Israel's spiritual exile, and they will bring home Jews prepared for Messiah's kingdom. They will be fishers of men. Now notice, how do they respond to this command? Do they say, um, let me just take one more fishing round, right? Let me go see what else I can catch, or what do they do? What does the text say? At once, at once, they left their nets and they followed him. See, this wasn't an invitation. If you read it in the Greek, Jesus is not inviting them. He's calling them. He's commanding them to come. The king has sent them a summons. And when a king sends you a summons, you go. Back in uh, high school, we had a wonderful principal he was a family friend and a really godly and just man. But he was about 6'6", six, six and um, bulky, not, not heavy. He, he was just a big dude. 6'6", six, six, built like a linebacker. A gentle guy, but he was uh, physically imposing. Now, when the principal uh, came on, or when uh, a teacher, you had a, a note in the classroom that saying, Principal McCarn wants to see you. You got a summons by the principal. You didn't dilly-dally or finish your homework or say, I need a drink of water. You went immediately to go see the principal, and that's exactly what is happening here. Jesus calls them, and they obey. We see a second set of men, brothers as well, in verses 21 and 22. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, presumably with the same words, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. This is pretty much the same song, different verse as the section before, but here we see a, a couple of different details. Here the men are mending their nets instead of casting their nets. More on that in a second. They are also said to leave both their jobs and what? Did you notice it? His name was mentioned twice. Daddy's there. See, the call to discipleship is, is, is total. They don't just drop their, their, their day job. They leave their families. They leave their dad. Significantly, these four men mentioned here make up what would be the core, the center of Jesus' 12 men, with three of them being in the inner circle of disciples. So, what can we glean from the king's calling of his men? At least two things. We'll make it three. The second step of discipleship we see here as well. It's belonging to Jesus. While the first step is believing in, Je- in Jesus, repentance and faith, now what does Jesus say? There's the call to repent, but then there's a call to follow, right? The two greatest needs of every human being is presented here. The need of salvation and the need to follow Christ. Salvation, right, which, which results from repentance and faith in Jesus, then discipleship or following Jesus, learning to, to be what he wants us to be and allowing him to shape us to become the people that God has in mind. So there's believing and then there's belonging, And we'll get to the third here in a second. But number two, consider your calling. Here I think it's 
illustrative in these disciples, we see a picture of ourselves. Consider your calling to use the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, When he says this, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And he goes on to talk about the fact that when, when these Corinthians became Christians, that not many of them were the best and the brightest and the, the wealthiest and the most socially elite. Not many of you were on the A-team, so to speak, when God called you to follow him. And certainly we see the, the same thing with these fishermen. Right, Jesus is not calling the A team here. He's calling the C team, so to speak. When I was uh, playing football in my younger days, uh, I went to a small school, much like Cisna. So we had about sixty people in our high, in, in my class, about two hundred in, in our high school, and uh, we uh, had a football game, and it was scheduled for uh, sched- it was scheduled and canceled for some reason. So our coaches were like, "Guys, game's canceled. We're going to try to find you an opponent." We're like, "Great, we want to play." So the next day, the coaches come back and they say, we found an opponent. I'm like, great, who are we going to play? And they said, we're going to play Corpus Christi Cal Allen. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, which it probably doesn't, because uh, you're not from Texas, Corpus Christi Cal Allen was a 4A school, which means they had over probably 2,000 students in their high school. We had about 200 students in our high school. They were perennially in the high school playoffs, multiple state titles, that kind of a thing. So they, they were like, great, we're going to play. Who are we playing? Cal Allen. You could have heard a pin drop, right? Because we're all thinking, I don't want my femur to be broken, right? I like my brain. I don't want it to be crushed. So then came the news, because shock and all, right? Guys, we're, we're playing their D team. We're playing their D team. We're like, okay. So it's not varsity, no. It's not JV, no. It's like two levels beyond JV. We can do it. And we beat those guys down. Cal Allen, go down. So listen. We, oh yeah, we did. We took him down, baby. Yeah, a little banquetti. We took on the big dog. The worst of the worst of the worst. Guys, this is like Cal Allen's D team here, right? Jesus calls these kind of people. But if we were honest, isn't that kind of the same with us? I mean, aren't we kind of a part of the C team as well? See, here's the thing about discipleship. God doesn't pick us for who we are. God picks us for who he wants us to be, right? He calls us to follow Jesus for who he wants us to become, what he's going to do with us. What did Jesus say? Come follow me, and then, then what? I will make you, right? There's a process here. I will make you fishers of men. Third, the third step of discipleship, which is similar, is being sent out by Jesus. The idea of being fishers of men. There was once a a sign that appeared on a church that I think gets it mostly right. The sign said this, be fishers of men. You catch them, he'll clean them, referring to God. You catch them, and he'll clean them. I think that's pretty accurate. It's interesting to me here that we see the first set of brothers, when Jesus calls them, they were casting out their nets, right? For they were fishermen. The second set of brothers, they were mending their nets because they were fishermen. Might that be just a a little picture of what it must mean to be fishers of men? I think it might be. Is this not how God uses the church? He catches fish, so to speak, or lost people when we cast out the nets of the gospel. And then he does the mending, right? He does the cleaning. The lost become saved and he begins to work on them to make them who he wants them to be. So we've seen the king's message and the king's men. Let's close by seeing the king's ministry. 
in verses 23 through 25, it closes with a very short and sweet summary of what Jesus' initial ministry looked like. Verse 23, three primary ministry activities of Jesus are highlighted. Jesus went throughout Galilee, notice, teaching in their synagogues, number one, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, number two, and healing every disease and sickness among the people, number three. See, Jesus taught and he preached and he met people's physical needs. He taught his disciples, those who had a relationship with him. He preached the gospel to the multitudes, those that likely did not, and he healed many people. He met spiritual needs and he met physical needs. He did both. We'll talk about that in a second. Three primary types of diseases Jesus healed are highlighted in verse 24. News about him spread over all of Syria, the region to the north. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. So we see Jesus teaching and preaching, meaning spiritual needs. He meets physical needs as the Messiah. See, in the Old Testament, there's this idea that when Messiah comes and when the kingdom is upon us, that sickness and illness will be done away with. And so here, Jesus, through, uh, through his miraculous powers, is, is demonstrating the kingdom is at hand, right? The kingdom is coming, and I am the king. Notice, he closes, Matthew closes the section uh, in verse 25. Large crowds came to see Jesus. Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the region they were in, the the Decapolis, the region to the east, Jerusalem and Judea, the region from the south, and the region across the Jordan followed him, southeast of them. So Matthew wants us to get this picture that when Jesus burst onto the scene, it was no small deal. All sorts of people, Gentiles included, likely came to him, as well as Jewish people, and it was big. There was all sorts of people coming. Now let me ask, as we wrap up here, why did large, large crowds come to see Jesus? I think Matthew makes it pretty clear here. News spread about him all over Syria, and then how did people respond? News got out, and then all of the sick and ill people were brought to him. So why did they come? They came... Rightly so, because there's a man who's healing all sorts of people. And that's good and right. But what we see throughout even Matthew's gospel, in particular in the gospel of John, is that this large uh, large crowd of people that Jesus began his ministry, slowly but surely would begin to dwindle as Jesus continued to preach and to teach and to share. He initially draws a big crowd, but eventually that crowd would dissipate and culminate in a cross. So here's, here's here, how, how I liken, liken it to you. Let's just say, just for fun, that we advertised all across Iroquois County that uh, on one Sunday and one Sunday only, if you came to Grace Bible Church at that particular Sunday, we would give every individual who walked through the door $1 million. Every, it's, it's hypothetical. You know that, right? Hypothetical. Let's just say, do you think we'd have a pretty good crowd? There would be people hanging from the roof, right? People in the baptistry, all over the place, right? We'd have a huge crowd. And then I'd preach, and I'd share the gospel. But it's one Sunday and one Sunday only. So next Sunday rolls around, and let me ask you this. Do you think that same crowd would be back that next week? Maybe some, but probably not many, because we're only giving away $1 million one Sunday. 
And surely the magnificent preaching that they would get from the pulpit wouldn't be enough to draw them back if they're not getting $1 million. So, it's kind of like Jesus' ministry. It started with a bang. He offers healing. But eventually the crowds would dissipate. Eventually the crowds would culminate in a cross. So, final lesson for us today. We too, as Jesus did here in the section, are to meet people's spiritual and physical needs. Both are needed. Both are necessary. So let me just ask this question. If Jesus here uh, is summarized and, and highlighted by three primary ministry activities, do you think it's a good idea for us as Christians and as a church to emulate that? I think it's a good idea, right? If Jesus did these three things, maybe we should think about doing these three things as well. Teaching disciples, preaching the gospel, and meeting physical needs. So generally speaking, churches and individuals lean one way or the other. So some churches focus all on discipleship. It's all about knowledge and teaching the the word and growing disciples, but they may not share the gospel as much with the lost, and they may overlook the meeting of tangible needs. Other churches will focus on evangelism. So all of their ministries are, hey, come and see. We're going to share the gospel. Every sermon is a gospel sermon. But they do so at the expense of growing their people in the word. And all the Bible verses that their people know are the ones related to salvation in the gospel. That's all they know, right? Still other churches focus more on just doing good in their community, meeting practical needs, right? But are light on substance for making real disciples of Jesus and, uh, and, doing, uh, including, uh, and including the gospel when they do their do-gooders. So, friends, we just need to think about our own lives as Christians and our own church. These are the three things that Jesus did. These are the three things that we need to be doing as a church as well. So, as we conclude... I'm sure you've been watching the news like I have this past week. Uh, and maybe you haven't been, but if you have, it's been a pretty busy week in our country. Uh, in fact, it's, you don't have to watch long, and you know that it's been very interesting and a very busy week for the new administration. Uh, lots of people agree. Lots of people uh, disagree. There's, there's back and forth. Executive orders. His agenda seemingly uh, is, is, is being announced daily. There's a flurry of activities, and it's only been a week. I think we get a similar picture here. Jesus begins his ministry, his inaugural ministry, with his baptism. And then he inaugurates his ministry with a flurry of activities. He's preaching the gospel. He's calling men to discipleship, to to be with them. He fills his days with teaching and preaching and, and, and healing. So, we've finished the first major section in the Gospel of Matthew. Next week, we move on to Matthew chapter 5. We move from the person of the king, which is focused on verses 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4, and we will look at the platform of the king. It's a common word these days, platform, a person's platform. We're going to look at the platform of Jesus in the, the form of the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe the greatest sermon, well, it's Jesus, so it is, the greatest sermon ever given. Wonderful sermon. I look forward to seeing you there. Let's pray.